All right. Blessed are you who like my voice, because we're reading Matthew 5, 1 through 12. It's a lot. Okay. <clears throat> so seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, my OCD kicks in and the rug gets crooked, and that's all I'll be able to think about the entire time. Um, glad you're here. I always do my disclaimer, not a Father's Day sermon. I don't do those. I don't do Mother's Day or Father's Day. I do Christmas. I do Easter. And then it's just the Bible the rest of the way through. Um, welcome to Watermark. Um, so uh, we're going through the Beatitudes, and we looked at them one way last week. And we're going to look at them a different way this week. This is our last week in the Beatitudes. You're welcome. It's been a long time. Um, okay, so I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into this. Let's pray. Father, we gather here together under your name, under your banner. Uh, we are your followers, followers of Jesus. And we gather here to allow you and invite you to speak to us, to reform us, to change our hearts and minds. Um, <clears throat> about what we are doing here, about the role that we are here to play in this world, about where this thing is heading, about how to bring healing and reconciliation into this broken and painful world. Uh, wake us up, pull the blinders off our eyes, reveal to us your gospel in a fresh and new way every time we gather together. Um, Speak through me, allow me to be present and here, and remembering the things that I've studied, allow all of us to gather to be here, to receive the gift that is the church, to receive the blessings that come with gathering together. Um, we ask that you would turn our hearts towards divine things, bigger things than we think about normally throughout the week. Just set our hearts on the things of you, the things of love and grace. Speak to us. Um, Whatever it is that you want to say to us, allow us to receive it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So last week, uh, we looked at the Beatitudes um, sort of as one big sort of progressive sort of narrative thing where uh, it's, it's about how the, the gospel changes the world. And so we stand there and we realize um, it's not those who have it all together, those who are who are rich and successful, who have some marketable skill. It's not them who are blessed solely. It is them as well as all of us. So blessed are the poor and the mourning, the sad, those who can't um, quite get it together, those who can't quite accomplish the thing or, or finish the task or, um, or kick the habit or lose the weight or whatever it is. We, we affirm that like it's okay. Our love, the blessing of God that he pours out upon us is, has nothing to do with our ability to climb out of these things. It's a gift. It's called grace. And we see that through hearing the proclamation of grace over us, 
we awaken to the fact that we are separated from others and that they deserve the same grace we receive. And so we move towards them. And so we become peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Um, And then when we find ourselves standing in the middle between two people and pulling them closer, both sides are firing at us and we find ourselves persecuted. Well, you know what? Blessed are the persecuted. It's okay. Um, So that is one incredibly beautiful, helpful way to look at things. Um, There are many other ways to look at passages of Scripture. I know we're, we're trained to think like, you read it, and here's what it means, and that's all. I never want um, people who are listening to my teachings to think that you can't pick up the Bible now and read it the same way you always have, simply because you're afraid of being wrong. There are lots of ways to look at the Scriptures from lots of different angles. You've heard me talk about it in the ancient sort of rabbinical way as like a precious gem with lots of faces, and you kind of turn it to look at it from a different angle and turn it to look at it from a different angle. There is... Um, This is a very ancient way of looking at these passages. So you look at today's passage. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Righteousness, I'm going to say snake. I don't know why. (laughs) I keep doing this. I'm tired of bringing attention to it. I'm just going to do it and keep moving. Righteousness snake. (laughs) If you're looking for a metal band name, I don't know. (laughs) For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And you're going to look at this passage... And we have the other way. We are equipped with that now. That's sort of like a, it's an arrow in our quiver. We can pull that one out and use it if we need to. Um, but there's lots of ways to look at this passage. Um, there's this rabbinical tradition where they would look at it and they would say, um, now, that is one way. Again, let's turn it another way. They would say the, uh, the ancient text had 70 faces, which is amazing. I don't, somebody counted. Um, but there's this... Um, there's this text in the, in, the, in the Talmud. This is a particular uh, commentary right here. Uh, Bamid Bar Rabbah 13.5 is a commentary on the book of Numbers, an ancient Jewish commentary on this. And it says, There are 70 faces to the Torah. Turn it around and around, for everything is in it. Um, look at it as many ways as you can. As many, see how deep you can go with it. See how wide you can take it. Um, and so there was this ancient encouragement to like, look at it again. Now look at it again. Now look at it again. Um, one of the great things about, um, I, I, was, I was reading this this week, and I, I saw the name Bamidbar Rabbah. So like, Bamidbar, we translate that as numbers and stuff. But um, there's some Hebrew here. Ba means in. Uh, Midbar is the Hebrew word for desert. And Rabbah means like powerful or strong and standing. So it's like, I'm in the desert and I'm standing strong. I love that. I don't know. It's just an extra thing. That's it. Um, so today's passage is about persecution. I know... If you grew up in Christian evangelicalism, like I did, you hear a lot of things about persecution. There's this general belief that is enforced inside of you that at some point, the governments of the world will start arresting Christians and killing them. It's, it's a particular theology, dispensationalism, a way of reading the Bible that sort of, it leads you to believe that like, the, for some reason, the government is just going to turn on Christians and start arresting them and killing them. Um, and then there's like old Christian music videos about this, you know, Ray Bolts and stuff. Maybe you've seen it, probably haven't. Um, and then there's like, uh, there's like these ancient, like I say ancient, like 1970s movies, um, like Thunder in the Distance and stuff. And like it's a particular way of seeing Christian persecution that's like we're minding our business and we're just trying to live good moral lives, but the government doesn't, doesn't want us to believe in God and, and doesn't want us to um, live good, honest moral lives, and so they want to kill us for some reason. It, it never really made sense to me. But when you look at this in the first century, um, the, the question you should really ask when reading about persecution in the Bible is, why, why would, an, would an earthly government 
start rounding up Christians and killing them. Because it did happen. Um, and it, it can happen. The question is, why would it happen? Um, and if you can get into the root of that, if you can figure out what, what, what is it about Christianity that makes it a threat to these nations, that's a big question. And if you can answer that question, that actually has the power to change how you live your life and, and, and live under any earthly government. Um, because there is something about the teachings of Christ that are a threat to people in power. There just is. We're going to talk about that. Um, and some of this will be some review. I've talked about many of these ideas individually. I'm going to sort of put a bunch of them together today and talk about persecution. Um, but the big question that I want to start off with is, have you ever asked yourself, like, why did the Roman emperors try to eradicate the Christians? Why did they start rounding them up um, and killing them? Why did they um, gather them all up and set them loose in the, in the Colosseum to be attacked by lions and and bears and, and, and wild dogs. Why did they do this? Why did they, as Sam talked about a few weeks ago, why did Nero kill Christians and cover them in, in tar and, and use them to light on fire at his garden parties? Why were Christians treated this way? What was it about them that set them apart? I mean, was it just worshiping Yahweh or following Jesus? Because the Romans had thousands of gods, didn't they? What's different about this? Um... And so I think really to understand this, you have to understand the Roman Empire and Roman propaganda. Uh, You have to understand what the intent of earthly kingdoms is. Earthly kingdoms are all the same. They may operate differently. Some may be more just than others. But they all operate uh, in the end. Their goal is the same. We all want to create a nation that lives in peace and harmony And we want this to spread throughout the world and eventually bring peace to the world. And earthly nations are, are all of them separated. These are are sort of mini attempts at this whole thing. We all want people to be reconciled. We all want to live in peace. We all want to sort of respect each other uh, and live in this way that's like, I'm going to let you live. I'm going to live and we're going to celebrate life together. Um, And nations and earthly governments are and attempts to answer those desires that are inside of us. So, um, we need to talk a little bit about the Roman Empire, which was the most successful in the ancient world, the most successful empire to try this. Uh, they came the closest. Um, and so, in order to understand this, uh, I want to take you to Mark chapter 1, and I want to start there, because Mark is the oldest gospel that we have. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark is the oldest one. It was written first. And it starts off by telling you, we're about to tell the story of Jesus. And it starts off like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Very simple, innocuous phrase, right? Like we, you read that and you're like, well, yeah, there's some theology here. It's the beginning, obviously, the start of the story of Jesus. He's going to tell the story uh, of the gospel of Jesus. We believe in the gospel. It's just this thing that Christians say, we believe in. Um, And then the, the Son of God, that's part of theology, Trinitarian theology. It's just, it works inside this modern theological framework. In the first century, however, this was not an innocuous phrase. This was a, an absolute rebellious phrase. The early Christians, uh, it was a, a very, it was a movement of resistance. It was a movement of, of rebellion. Have you ever seen on the back of cars um, that little fish? Um, or like on businesses, that little fish? Kind of a marketing ploy, right? They're trying to get Christians' money. 
I'm a Christian. Give me your money. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, the car cuts you off, and they give you the finger, and there's a Christian fish there. That, that car. I've seen it. I'm assuming they just bought the car, and it came with it. Um, that symbol itself is a symbol of ancient Christian rebellion. Someone would stand against a wall uh, in a city where it was illegal to be a Christian, and they would make an ark with their foot or across their body. And they would stand in the middle of that ark, leaning against the wall, whatever, just kind of hanging out. And Christians entering that city would walk the streets looking for the person standing in front of that ark. And they would walk up to this person, look him in the eye, and they would make the other ark and complete the fish. And they would look at each other and they would know, I'm a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus. We have a gathering of Christians right over here, come with me. And they could go worship together. Uh, without fear of persecution and, and just revealing yourself. Because if you walk up to the wrong person and you say, I'm a Christian, you're in trouble. Um, it was a sort of this, at times, this ultra-secret resistance. And it had to be. And let's talk about why. There's this phrase here, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we say all the time, I believe in the gospel, I preach the gospel, I do this. Um, and it's just a phrase that we use, the gospel. Have you ever thought about what it means? It is this ancient Greek word, evangelion. Everyone say, Evangelion. All right, we're very good. Hey, there's a lot of you. It sounds like... All right. Um, and it means good news or good tidings. When the, you picture the angels coming and speaking to the, the, um, the, the shepherds in the field, I bring good tidings. I bring evangelion. I bring, I bring you a gospel of great joy. Uh, it means good news. Um, and we did not invent this word. The Christians did not invent this word. This is an ancient word that comes, started really with the Roman Empire. It was the proclamation of the gospel of Rome. It was the good news of Rome. Um, it was the good news uh, about the empire. It was their method of propaganda. And it would be proclaimed once a week in the town square. The, the, the Roman, whatever squire would stand there and he would open up the giant scroll and he would proclaim the gospel of Rome and he would read it. And the things he would read about is here is where the... Uh, a battle is taking place on this side of the empire. Uh, the troops are victorious. Uh, they have conquered many towns over there. And the kingdom of Rome has expanded more and more and more. Um, and there are more and more people, members now, of the uh, citizens of the kingdom of Rome. This thing is spreading. Um, and this was good news. And they would proclaim this. So it was the good news that they were bringing peace to the world. Good news that the kingdom of Rome was spreading to the other ends of the, of the world. And it was spreading. It was very successful. It was, it was the good news um, that, that every week would be preached, and as these Roman soldiers would walk through the streets, um, they would sometimes hold up these coins and toss them out. And these coins were oftentimes like little sort of mini newspapers. They would have like an image of, of an emperor conquering a town or a story of some goddess that was now under their rule or reign. Toss these coins out. And the coins, as they circulated, the message of the gospel of Rome would spread throughout the world, and everyone would know that peace is coming by the sword to the ends of the world. That evil is being vanquished and killed and destroyed. Our enemies are falling left and right. The kingdom of Rome is being established and is, and is reigning victorious. Now, all of this is done at the, at the rule and will of the emperor. The emperor is deciding how fast this thing is going to spread. Um, so let's talk about the emperor. At one point, this is really hard to see, I apologize. Um, the Roman Empire included almost... All of the whole known world, from Britain to the Euphrates River, from Germany uh, to North Africa, it was this massive, massive empire. You can still see uh, tons of their buildings 
all over Europe today. Um, and there arose this question, how do we get all of these people who are now considered Romans on one page? How do we get all of them to think the same way? How do we get all of them to accept the gospel of Rome, that this is good news, that Rome is good, not evil? Because if they don't come to see that the God, and, and believe and have faith in the gospel of Rome, uh, then at some point they're going to rise up and overthrow us because there's lots of them and they're all very different, different nationalities, different cultures, different ways of living. And so they invented this god, this goddess. Her name was Roma. She's the spirit of Rome. And they instituted the worship of the goddess Roma throughout all of the empire. Now, the goddess um, Roma, okay, so here's a picture of her on a coin, an ancient coin, Roma. It's a woman, wings on her head. She's spreading, moving quickly throughout the world, bringing peace to the world. Um, and so the spirit of Rome, the people were more than happy to worship Roma, the spirit of Rome, because uh, she had brought them peace, good government, civil order, and justice. The roads were cleared of bandits. The seas had been emptied of pirates. Um, some of the cities that Rome was conquering were ruled by despots and terrible, terrible people. And those people were set free of them. And now they were citizens of Rome with access to um, medicine. And, and uh, they would pay taxes, but they would receive roads. And now they could travel and uh, things were, they were safer because now there was no armies waging. You would never wage war against Rome. And so the people started to believe in the gospel of Rome. And they put faith in the gospel of Rome. They believed that by putting faith in the gospel of Rome, by taking part in what Rome was doing, peace would spread to the ends of the world and they could finally live in a world where the kingdom of Rome had come, the kingdom of Roma, and, and the world was at peace. Um, and at some point, the emperors uh, decided um, the goddess Roma, really, I mean, they invented her, right? Uh, and really, they were the ones making all the decisions and so at some point, um, this guy, Caesar Augustus, decides, um, I am actually Roma incarnate. I am the God incarnate in this world, and you should worship me. I am here and present in this world. I am the one being led by the spirit of Roma to guide all of this. And so this thing became invented called emperor worship. It wasn't something the original emperors of Rome wanted. The officials tried to stop it, um, especially Emperor Claudius. He was fully against worshiping the emperor as a god, um, but Claudius said, but Claudius was struck down. He was killed and Caesar Augustus rises up and he declares himself, um, a son of the gods and the emperor and the God, the divine incarnate Roma in the flesh. And you will worship the emperor. And honestly, the people went along with this. They were, they were more than willing to like, to worship this guy because they were from their perspective, living in relative peace. Um, but they had no concept of the injustices that were happening all around them, of the people that were being slaughtered in the cities as they were spreading, of um, the oppression that they were really living under, and just how bad this was going to get by design. Um, if you read the theologian William Barclay, a New Testament uh, theologian, he says this, But as the years went on, the Roman government saw in emperor worship the one thing which could unify the vast empire of Rome. And here was the one center on which they could all come together. So in the end, the worship of the emperor became not voluntary, but compulsory. As people worshipped, it became demanded that they worship, and no longer was it an option. And so now the people had to stand up regularly and proclaim their loyalty um, to the gospel and their faith in the gospel of Rome and declare the emperor Augustine, Nero, Domitian, as the son of God, 
a God incarnate in the flesh and worship this person. Which brings us back to the Gospel of Mark. If you're going to write a book about the life of Jesus and you want to make an impact and you want to drive a point home right off the bat, if you want to let these people know what kind of book you're reading, you're going to pick this thing up and you're going to read it and you're going to see the very, very first line and you're going to picture Jesus and it's going to say, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's you're going to be like, whoa, this is, this is scary. This is propaganda. Like this is, this is heavy. This is dangerous. What is this that I am reading? Because if Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then Caesar is not. And if, if you're hearing the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, um, and then you start reading, you say, whoa, this is vastly different than what I've heard about Rome, about the gospel of Rome. Um, then you realize what kind, of, what kind of choice you have to make here. Are you going to follow Jesus as Lord, or are you going to stand up and declare Caesar is Lord? Because if, if Caesar is Lord, Jesus is not. And if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And if you follow either Jesus or Caesar, um, the outcomes are vastly different. Because if you believe in the gospel of Rome, then you believe that peace and salvation comes to the world at the end of a sword and a spear and an army. And that by, by driving people down, by killing them, by driving them to the ground. But if you believe in Jesus, then you believe in servant leadership, washing the feet of those um, who look up to you. You believe in, uh, instead of ruling over, serving under, instead of power over at the sword, it's, it's submissive and it's, and it's actually losing the battle on the cross and finding resurrection, which brings about this whole new way. And so the, the, the kingdom of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus does not at all line up with the kingdoms of Rome. And Rome, their ends and their, their determination of how things are made right was no different than any other nation in the world. This is how nations function. This is how we believe things are kept at peace. We tend to say Jesus is, Jesus is Lord. That's something we believe, but it's more of a theological term but if you stop thinking of it like a theological term and you start thinking of it in a first century actual, like a Lord, like they're sitting on a throne and they've, made these, they've laid out a plan, like, no, this is how salvation and healing comes into the world. And, and if you put faith in Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus, and you follow Jesus, that affects every aspect of your life and how you live, um, there is an end that, that is coming that is beautiful and good. But if Jesus isn't Lord... If you, if you allow some other ideology teach you, no, I think this is how peace comes to the world, um, then Jesus is not Lord. You are not really a Christian. And this is the dichotomy we have that we find ourselves with uh, in the first century. Because this, this uh, affected every aspect of your life. You had to declare Caesar was Lord and believe and have faith in the gospel of Rome that no, this is how things should be and this is how things move forward and this is how, uh, rec- this is how we are reconciled to each other and the gods as they would believe. But if you're a Christian, you can no longer take part in what is going on then. Uh, so let's, let's take a few examples of what this would do um, in the first century if you became a follower of Jesus. So uh, this here uh, is an ancient structure. It's called the Bulletarian. It's just a big square um, with uh, a very ornate marble stand in the middle of it. There would be some hot coals on the stand. The entrance is over here on the left uh, and on the right, and there's these little stairs that would walk down. 
There's a table over here on the right, a little stand that would have a bowl with incense in it. If you were on city council, you were just, um, just a person like you, you would gather like every single day and make decisions about how the city should be run, giving people permits to buy food and, and permits to do work, whatever it was. Um, you would gather here. This is where you would go to work. And when you came to work every day, you would walk down these stairs, you would step over here to the, uh, to the bowl of incense, and you would take a pinch of incense. And then you would walk over to the center of the bulletarian where the, the marble stone, the marble ornate um, statue would be. On, on, on different sides of this, of this marble stand is faces of different gods. Um, this one, I believe, on the other side of it had a... Uh, um, oh, it was... Uh, shoot, you ever just like totally blank middle of something. Um, Oscalapius. Sorry, easy word to forget. Oscalapius. <laughs> Oscalapius' face is on the other side of it because he's the local deity. So Caesar is Lord and Oscalapius is the honored local deity. So you would take some incense and you'd walk over to the, uh, the coals and you would drip it on the coals and smoke would go up. Um, and this is how they believe this was like what you, you would make an offering for the gods because they're up there and smoke goes up and they would smell and be like, oh, that's nice. You'd be like, you're welcome. That was me. Um, I'm here, uh, before we get started, I'm going to declare Caesar is Lord and Oscalopius is honored above the other deities here. And they'd be like, yes, thank you. We agree. We all just do the same thing. And then we sit down and we get to work. But recently you've been hearing the teachings of these Christians. And you've been hearing about this, um, this ancient nation um, whom God had been speaking to and their prophets had, had been receiving messages from the divine and, and awakening them to who God really is in this world, the creator of everything and what we are intended to be here. And, and you've heard about this new thing called grace, which this rabbi Jesus uh, is teaching. And you've never heard of this before. Um, and it has absolutely changed how you think. And you've gone to the church gatherings and you've walked into the church gatherings and you've seen something that you've never seen before, which is the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, the Jews and the Gentiles, men and women, all gathering together as absolute equals and preaching the gospel and hearing the gospel, confessing their sins and worshiping this Jesus. And it absolutely changed you as you gather with them and you hear the teachings of Christ. And you start to think, you know what? I think that is, that is the right way. I think the gospel of Jesus, I believe that. I believe God is, is drawing me. I believe the work of Christ has reconciled me to God. I believe um, that I'm not an enemy of God, I'm, that I'm loved. I'm a beloved child of God, and, and God wants to use me to establish this kingdom in this world. And you have bought in, and now you have faith in the kingdom, and the, in the kingdom of heaven, and the gospel of Christ. Um, but then you go to work and you walk down the stairs and you take the incense and you go to the center stand and you're like, ah, I can't do this. I can't say Caesar is Lord because I no longer believe that this is how the world is made right. I no longer believe in earthly governments. I no longer believe the things that the world around me believes about how things are. I can't drop this incense. And if I do drop it and I say Jesus is Lord, I'm out of a job. And the fact is, you are out of a job. And the fact is that every single job that you wanted to do in the empire of Rome, whether it was selling, um, being a butcher and selling meat or selling baskets or selling groceries that, that you grew from your own garden, you couldn't do any of this unless you first 
dropped some incense on a local altar wherever you were and declared, Caesar is Lord, I believe in the gospel of Rome, um, and I honor the local deities. And if you did that, if, if you wanted to sell in the marketplace, you would drop the incense and you would declare Caesar is Lord and you would worship the local deities and you would take what the Christians called the mark of the beast. be on your hand or on your forehead or you would just receive a piece of paper called a libellus, uh, a certificate. And then you'd be free to do business. But the Christians could no longer do this. And this creates a problem. It was set up this way. Um, there is no other Lord but Caesar. If you're going to be a citizen of Rome, you will worship and honor the government and the leader of the government. There is no other person whom you should follow. There is none higher than Caesar. All praise goes to Caesar. And so what are the Christians going to do? Some of them lose everything. Lose their jobs, lose everything. They can't feed their families. And so they're gathering together. And it's interesting, if you read Acts chapter 2, the response and exactly what starts to happen, it's fascinating. It says, all the believers were together and they shared everything that they had and they sold what they owned and they gave each other everything that they needed. And every day they met together in the temple courtyard. In their homes, they broke bread and ate together. Their hearts were glad and honest and true. And they praised God and they were respected by all people. And every day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. Now we're in trouble because now they have this sort of mini community, almost like, a, almost like a government, but the law is grace. And they're starting to take care of each other, and they don't need the empire anymore. They don't need Rome. They understand how this works. We pour ourselves out for you. I was rich. I'm willing to become poor because you are starving. I will pour myself out for you, and we're finding healing, and more and more are coming. There's one particular day um, uh, on the chapter before this where it talks about how 3,000 people became Christians in one day followers of Christ. This is a problem. And it starts to draw the attention of, of the emperors. And they're irate and they're upset about this. This affected every aspect of their lives. By claiming that they believed in the gospel of Christ, it wasn't just something that where they would just say, oh, I'm a Christian. And that nobody would know. It was obvious because you weren't taking part in anything that would prop up and lift up an unjust system in the world that was working actively against the kingdom of heaven. And you would join the family that was planting the kingdom of heaven here, that was a just and good and holistic and healing society. And you were welcoming people in and the slave and the free and the rich and the poor and the men and the women and the Jews and the Gentiles and the Samaritans. They were all coming in together and they were living in peace under the gospel of Jesus. That is why persecution happened in the first century. That is it is it a direct threat to an empire. Because it's growing rapidly and they're saying out loud we don't believe you. We don't believe in your ability to bring justice or peace or healing or salvation or any of it. We don't believe you. The way of Jesus is different, and we are followers of Christ. And so rapidly, they started being rounded up and killed. This is why governments kill Christians. Because Christianity is a direct threat to systems of the world. Because systems of the world are built upon 
um, riches and prestige and the identity um, of the most powerful and the smartest. Christianity is built upon, no, them over there, the lowest, the people that you've ignored, they are loved by God and we will move towards them and serve them and lift them up. Two different things. We are moving in two different directions. So when Christianity is being persecuted, it's because we are actively standing in the way of spiritual darkness in high places in, in what they are doing in this world. So this is what causes Christians to be persecuted because you lose your livelihood. There are things you have to give up when you really believe that the way of Jesus is right. There are things that you look at and you wake up, you, I cannot any longer take part in this. And we see it all the time. You see people saying, I was there, this is how I was living, and I had to repent, and I had to change, um, and I lost a lot, but it was the best thing I ever did. Now I, I find wholeness, I find healing. And so we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he goes, uh, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, you are in good company. Um, you follow a long line of tradition of, of being the mouthpiece of God and standing up and saying, I will not take part in what you are doing. I do not believe in your methods. I do not believe that this is how the world is fixed and made whole. I believe in grace and mercy. And I believe that the cross of Jesus, the death and the burial, the, the defeat that Jesus experienced is what brings about resurrection, is what brings new life to all those who follow it. And he says, and, and when you live this way, though, you will be reviled, you will be persecuted. Because there is a way that the world works. There is a way that they believe peace enters into the world. And it's not true. It has been tried for centuries. Thousands upon thousands of years, human beings have tried this. And Jesus, this first century poor rabbi from a tiny town, enters in in divine form and, and levels it and says, hey, it's all upside down. This whole thing, you've been doing this wrong. Here's how you follow God. Here's what the people of God would look like. Here's what God actually looks like. Here's how you should live. And sometimes this still happens today. There are places where Christians are legitimately persecuted. Not here. Legitimately persecuted. There was, two, two years ago, in February 2015, there was, um, ISIS marched into a small town where there was a church and they destroyed the church and they pulled the Christians out and they took all the men and they took them down to the water's edge. 21 men lined them all up, put them in orange jumpsuits and filmed um, a propaganda film where they beheaded every one of these men for being men of the cross. The aims and goals of ISIS, when you compare them to the aims and goals of lots of nations, including Rome, are similar. Power, they want to establish a nation where they're going to have particular laws that are going to, they believe, usher in peace. And this peace is spread at the end of a gun, a modern sword. And they believe that this is how peace is brought into the world. In order to do that, you have to kill all those who would disagree with you. And they believe by doing all of these things, this is how it enters into the world. And so people of the cross have to be wiped out. So the question I kind of have um, is if, if this is why the church is persecuted, because it's in the way. Um, 
it should cause us to ask ourselves at all and be honest with ourselves and say, are, are we actually in any danger of actual persecution? Probably not. We're not in the way. Oftentimes, we're taking part, actually. He says, blessed are you when you were reviled and persecuted on my account. Um, we might be reviled, but it's not on account of living out the gospel. It's for totally different reasons. And I think we're at a place where we're kind of waking up to the fact that, like, we have made Christianity absolutely impotent. We've taken the power out of it. Um, we've created spaces in churches where we don't even allow people to, um, to stand up to what they see in the world that is against the kingdom of heaven um, for fear of losing their jobs because we aren't the people that would step up and be like, it's okay, I'll pour myself out for you. You do the right thing. We are here. I mean, the first century church, this is what it was. They weren't trying to institute some kind of like um, system. I mean, you have people, you have, you have both sides of the Christian aisle, conservatives and liberals saying, no, the Christians are, are capitalists. No, Christians are socialists. You can look at the Bible and see it. That's not what they were doing. They were surviving. They looked around and said, I'm going to pour myself out for you so that you can live and you can eat and so that we can celebrate and worship Jesus together. This is what a church is supposed to look like. This is how this whole thing is supposed to operate. We can come into the church and say, look, um, how are you doing? It's, it's difficult. Um, I had to speak truth to power today. I realized what I was a part of. And in hopes of changing and redirecting it, I spoke the truth and I lost everything. And I'm terrified. Well, you are a part of the body of Christ. What can we do to help? What can we do? This is... This has historically, it was supposed to be sort of the church. We are a family. And we back each other up and we push each other forward and we say, no, we are in the way. We will always be in the way. We will always speak the truth, no matter who's in charge, no matter, it's not a partisan thing, but it is a political thing. If you're doing a Jesus thing, we're gonna praise you and push you in that direction. If you're doing the opposite of a Jesus thing, we're gonna, we're gonna absolutely call you to repent and change. We will be in the way. We are, we are the people who believe that Jesus is Lord. Not any particular nation, not any government, not any political ideal, um, not any financial system, um, not any image or career, none of it. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, I am, I, I, I'm going to have purity of heart. I'm going to believe one thing. I'm going to move towards this thing. I'm not going to be double-minded and try to hold on to money um, and, and worship the idol of, of money and sex and power and all that. It, uh, I'm, I'm going to be fully devoted to this, to this gospel thing of Jesus because I believe this is how reconciliation comes into this world. I'm going to follow Jesus with everything I have and I will pay a price for it because Christianity is always in the way. It should be. We should be known as people like, oh, the Christians would never let that happen. Yes. Right now, we're not looked at as the church was in, in Acts chapter 2. Where all the, the people in the community were like, those are the Christians, like they, they get it. That's why their numbers were growing. You go, when, when you read the end of, of the Beatitude in chapter five, verse nine, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you are persecuted for doing the right thing, what you will find 
is that you don't have a kingdom here. That we are, as, as Peter says, dear friends, you are outsiders, you are strangers in this world. So I'm asking you not to give in to your sinful longings. They fight against your soul. If you give in, if you go along to get along, what is it costing you? It's costing all of us. All of us, everything. There is a way that we are supposed to live. We believe that Jesus is Lord. And so sometimes you will speak up in a room full of people um, who will ridicule and revile you. And so sometimes you will have to make those phone calls. And so sometimes you will have to offer your resignation. Sometimes you will have to spend some time in prison for blowing the whistle. Sometimes uh, you will have to be open and honest that like, despite what, what my entire tribe says, this is not the way of Jesus. And it will cost you dearly. And in that moment, Jesus says, you feel like you're cursed. You feel like you're being beaten down. You feel like, but no, hey, you are blessed because you realize your kingdom is not of this world and it doesn't matter. None of these kingdoms matter. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven is, is coming storming in and, and it will be established and it will grow. And when Jesus is actually Lord, um, that is when people are attracted to it. As long as Jesus is not Lord, as long as political power, um, as long as our desire to make laws that hold us up, as long as selfishness and money and whatever political systems that Christians tend to buy into today, as long as those things are Lord, the church is going to die and shrink. It was the proclamation of John the Baptist, the same thing that every Every single prophet, he said, come out from those cities, leave the city, come to the other side of the river. We're going to enter in the city again and try over, start over. As long as we are like making these things on par with Jesus and saying, no, you can have both. You can't have both. Jesus said it himself. You cannot serve two masters because you will love one and you will hate the other. And Jesus is sometimes very hard to love in the face of all that is being offered to you. Power is not Lord. Your retirement account is not Lord. Um, your identity is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's not Caesar. None of it. This is why Christians are persecuted. Um, and so there's this understanding that sometimes you will suffer. There's this, uh, there's this ancient theologian named Tertullian um, it was 100 years after the very start of the church. Tertullian was a theologian and a pastor in the church. And someone came to him and they looked at Tertullian and they said, I need to talk to you. I'm having a really intensely hard time. I have to make this decision. Um, and if I follow Jesus, if I, if I continue to put Jesus first and declare Jesus as Lord, I lose everything. And I've worked so hard for all of this and I'm gonna lose it all. And Tertullian looks at him and, and he says, he says, and what decision are you going to make? And the guy looks at Tertullian and he says, well, I must live. Tertullian looks at him and he goes, must you? Just kind of wake up like, really? Do you have to live? It's this kind of been like a thing on the back of my mind, like, like oh, I got to have a paycheck. Got to have this. Got to have that. You got to have safety. Got to have security. Do you? I mean, is that where your security comes from? Because if your security isn't coming really from your faith in Christ, that the way of Christ is right, that's called an idol. Because you're expecting something from this thing that, is, that you're supposed to get from Jesus. Our very life source, we believe the creator of all things, 
manifest in Jesus Christ. Like, um, where's my faith? The early Christians got it. Oftentimes, like when I was growing up, there'd be all kinds of people would say, I would, I would die for my beliefs. We, most, of us, most people that say that can't even like live for them. Like we just can't. It's very difficult. Um, so when the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, that's what they meant. It was not a theological statement. It was a, an act of pure resistance. We should be in the way. We should be a stumbling block for all the things the world is trying to do and say that is not the way. That is not how healing and reconciliation that, that comes in the world. That's not how salvation enters the world. That's not how people reconcile. That's not how they're made whole again. And we should be standing and just proclaiming the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, all of it. So let's take communion, the great reminder of, of what this is all about. So our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, while we're in communion today, why don't we ponder maybe there's something you're going through where you're having to make a decision um, and it's very complicated and you're, you're worried because you've worked maybe so hard for something and you don't want to give it up. Um, ask yourself if that's an idol. Ask yourself, like, you must have that. Like Tertullian said, must you? At, at what cost? At the cost of your soul? At the cost of your spiritual health and well-being? Is there another path? Do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you really have faith in Jesus that you can move down this path? Um, or contemplate somebody else you know who is going through this time. Spend some time in prayer for them. If they're here, go and pray with them. Encourage them. Say, I'm here. Whatever this looks like, whatever will come of this, um, I will help you however I can. I will allow myself to be poured out for you. And somehow we need to try to become a church that is like that. It's very hard. We all have our own plans that we're living by. And we have all these goals, but sometimes we should say, must we have that? There is someone else in our midst who has given up for the gospel. Um, Why don't we allow ourselves to be broken and poured out for them? Whatever that looks like. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us, change us. Um, You are our Father. You've given us life. You've given us the example of the, of the first Christians. I cannot imagine being raised and growing up in what they were going through. Thank you for their example of, of holiness and being set apart and understanding that Jesus is Lord. Help us to be people that establish your kingdom. Purge us of idolatry. Purge us of all the things that, that we allow ourselves to be double-minded in. Let us focus on you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Take some time and take communion with us.